3: The one that stuck out the most was definitely the guy asking Siri to lick his butthole.
4: Welcome to Radio Motherboard. I'm Adrienne Jeffries, Managing Editor, and this week we have two stories for you about artificial intelligence. Specifically about humans interacting with artificial intelligence. Our first story comes from staff writer Jason Kebler.
5: Welcome to a very special edition of Radio Motherboard. They're all pretty special, but this one is a little more special, in my opinion, because we're celebrating In Our Image, which is Motherboard's series of stories all about artificial intelligence. The podcast isn't really about hard AI. It's more about how humans interact with AI and uh, when humans become AI. The voice you heard at the beginning of the podcast belongs to a Redditor who goes by the name Fallen Mist. She caused a bit of a stir last year when she made a post called Everything you've ever said to Siri or Cortana has been recorded, and I get to listen to it.
3: Until that point, I had never realized, like consciously realized that although I'm just talking to my phone, this is still being collected and sent somewhere. And it's it was just kind of one of those moments of, they may not know who I am, but... I'm still going to be embarrassed if someone ever hears the things I'm saying to, you know, my personal assistant.
5: Over the course of three months, she spent about 100 hours listening to these voice commands. In exchange, she got internet points from a company called Crowdflower, which is kind of disturbing to me because... Uh, you'd think that they were at least paying people to do this, but no, they were just giving them points.
3: It was not full conversations. It was just sound bites that um, they would be giving Siri a command or asking her a question. And then we had a, a text readout of what the program software uh, translated the voice to. And we were just supposed to see if, you know, what was said matched what was put in text.
5: What you say to Siri or other digital assistants is not a secret. And anonymized databases like the one Fallen Mist worked on suggest that humans have no qualms with abusing robots. This story isn't about surveillance. It's about what people say to the AI in their lives and about what those artificial intelligences say back to us. Apple, Microsoft, and Google all have teams of writers that help decide what Siri, Cortana, or Google Now is going to say to you. And a large amount of their time goes into deciding what those virtual assistants say to you when you're being a jerk.
1: We get real insight into human mm. nature and the we get um, educated yeah. in an urban dictionary about all kinds of different <laughs> things that I didn't necessarily know. Yeah, I
5: bet there's a lot of anonymized research you could put you could publish on like what people, people are people, people like. feel
1: very comfortable yeah. talking freely to Cortana. Yeah.
5: That was Deborah Harrison being interviewed at the Rework Virtual Assistant Summit in February. Harrison is part of a team of writers from Microsoft who are responsible for giving Cortana her personality. She says that with that personality, Microsoft is consciously trying to encourage people to be nice to artificial intelligence. Harrison declined to be interviewed for this podcast, but luckily, thanks to the people over at Rework, we have audio of her talk.
1: We... Uh, we try to perpetuate this idea that that Cortana is on your side. Cortana is there for you, and Cortana is um, has your has your best interests at heart, and yeah. and wants wants you to do well, and also would like you to speak uh, to her in a way that that acknowledges that. If yeah. you if you say things that are particularly um, asshole-ish to Cortana, really, and it she'll She'll get mad at you, like not mad, but she'll she'll get like kind of like, dude, what, yeah. what, you know? Don't do that, you know, because because yeah. uh, that's not the kind of interaction that we want people yeah. to. We don't want to encourage it, and we don't want to make a game out of it either. If we if if you called Cortana, you know, a, like a bitch or something, and she and she was just like, rah, you know, then that might encourage people to come back and do it again, and we want to discourage that. That's not the kind of interaction that we have.
5: Yeah. So naturally, we decided to turn this into a game. We're not too proud of it, but I grabbed a motherboard staffer to say some mean, not too mean, things to Cortana to see how she'd react. It was, probably by design, not too much fun. Half the time she ignored us when we cursed at her, lots of times she didn't seem to understand what we were saying, and so she Googled our results, uh, I guess, binged the results, rather. Hey, Cortana, where were you born?
1: I was born at Microsoft.
5: Cortana, you're an idiot.
1: One of us needs to stop and take a breath. And one of us has no lungs.
5: Cortana, I hate you.
2: The feeling is not mutual.
5: What are you wearing?
2: Just a little something I picked up in engineering.
5: As I said, not that fun, which is probably the point, and it's totally by design. Microsoft is likely building on the real sociological research going into the idea that we should be nice to robots, not for the robot's sake, but for the sake of our fellow humans. Don Howard is a professor of philosophy of science at Notre Dame University where he often studies the interactions between humans and artificial intelligence.
0: We humans seem to be hardwired, uh, perhaps by our evolutionary heritage, we seem to be hardwired to attribute agency to entities on the basis of a surprisingly small set of behavioral cues. So mobility is one thing that elicits these attributions of agency. And very interestingly, unpredictability in the behavior of the entity tends to be a trigger that elicits attributions of agency. And with those attributions of agency, usually unconscious attributions of agency, there then comes the formation of some kind of an advective um, relationship uh, to the uh, uh, to, uh, to the bot.
5: He recently published a code of ethics for roboticists that says they should design robots with only as many anthropomorphic features as are necessary to accomplish a given task. Otherwise, robots should be, well, robotic. It seems like you suggest that, um, you know, roboticists should design robots that have as few uh, humanoid features as possible. Um, can you explain why that is?
0: Well, let me modify that just a little bit. No more humanoid features than are really necessary to meet the design objectives. I'd rather put it in, uh, in, in that way. Um, and one of the main concerns on our minds when we recommended that uh, was precisely the concern that uh, um, more than the necessary amount of humanoid features uh, might have the effect of eliciting from Uh, the humans who are interacting with the robots, eliciting from them uh, uh, the wrong kinds of reactions, emotional reactions, uh, ungrounded attributions of agency uh, toward uh, the robots. For
5: now, this conversation mostly revolves around chatbots and digital assistants, and maybe like the GPS that you yell at all the time. But late last year, the UK-based campaign against sex robots made waves for its position that humans should stick to having sex with other humans. They aren't a robots' rights group, although the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Robots is a real thing. The Campaign Against Sex Robots, instead, is a human rights group, and its campaign research director, Lydia Kay, says that if we treat Syrian Cortana terribly, we're probably going to treat sex robots the same. And if we dehumanize sex, then there's going to be implications for how we treat fellow humans.
6: The theory is that if sex robots become mass-produced um, and people use them on a regular basis, that sex with robots and sex with humans kind of becomes an interchangeable act, and people wouldn't create, wouldn't treat a object in the same way that they treat a human being at present. But if they have an object that looks very like a human being and they they do a human, a very human act with it, and then perhaps treat it in the same way as we see porn stars treated in pornography that's a very worrying thing that then they would go and have sex with a normal living human and they could end up you know, behaving in the same way with a human being as they do with a sex robot. The campaign against sex robots is much more about the physicality of the object, but actually these voices and devices are a really specific area within this argument as well. And um, you're right, it's less an extreme issue, but it is definitely an issue to be addressed. And um, the voices in most devices always have been and still are predominantly female and there's lots of reasons for this lots of kind of arguments for why this is some people think it might be biological and it's to do with you being in the womb and people find women potentially more stereotypically empathetic and trusting and helpful and you know caring so people kind of are used to a female voice um helping them but also telephone operators have uh, traditionally been female so there's this kind of um People are used to kind of female assistants. It's a you know a social thing that's kind of happened over time. So it's something that people are used to. Um, so in one respect, it, encouraged this, it encourages this stereotype in a world now where there are many more female CEOs and bosses. Of course, not enough. but um, So potentially it's encouraging that stereotype. But more to the point, um, it's a kind of disembodied female. And like you say, if they're putting down restrictions as to what people can say to... Um, Contana and Siri, I think that's probably a good idea because again, it's the same interchangeable act. If you're talking to somebody who sounds human on a phone and you're saying something abusive towards her or sexually suggestive or, or sexually insulting, then this could again become normalized and become something that seems socially acceptable, if not a bit funny, and then become something that be- You know, it gets infiltrated into society and becomes a norm and the way people talk to women in general. Really think about if this becomes a real norm in the future, we're recreating the narrative of humanity. If we continually use technology and talk to technology and have technology talk to us, it will dramatically change how humans talk to each other.
5: This is not to say that humans are all a bunch of jerks to robots. I'll leave you on a heartwarming note from Don Howard, who says there are plenty of times that humans are quite nice to robots, actually.
0: So a lot of literature out there now on uh, the uh, very curious phenomenon of robots eliciting uh, positive emotional responses from uh, human uh, agents. Uh, you hear these stories about GIs in Iraq who uh, genuinely mourn uh, the demise of a um, of a of a, uh, a bomb clearing or, or bomb finding uh, robot, or you read these stories about. Uh, Roomba owners who begin to develop some kind of affective relationship with the the Roomba. One story that makes the rounds is about a woman who was so great.
4: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
0: the Roomba saved that uh, on occasion she would give the Roomba a day off and do the vacuuming herself. Uh, But there's serious social science being done on this phenomenon as well.
5: That's my story about how we treat robots. But what about the people who want to become robots? Here's Luis Matsakis with a piece about a group of researchers who are training humans to act more like AI.
7: Last fall, I got a strange email from my best friend, Melissa Beswick. It contained a short survey asking me to gauge how reasonably she thought in her daily life. Did she often think through problems clearly? Could she express her reasons for doing certain actions? It turns out that the survey was from the Center for Applied Rationality, or Cfar, a nonprofit that hopes to change the world by teaching people to think more analytically. The survey was part of Melissa's admissions process to Cfar's four-day workshop in California, where she would supposedly learn to hone her logical thinking skills.
2: We've talked a lot about how useful models are this weekend. But they're also always at least a little bit wrong. So what should you do about that? So I'm going to, I want you to take away two things you can do about that. One is to step away from the models sometimes because they're also useful. And the other thing is to go and get new models.
7: I was initially skeptical. Melissa is an accomplished student finishing up an Ivy League degree. And I didn't understand why flying to California in order to attend a self-help seminar for four days would drastically improve her life.
4: Last semester, I wasn't taking classes and was mainly focusing on research. So I was thinking that this workshop could help me figure out what type of research I might want to do in graduate school. Um, And I specifically thought this not only because it is about figuring out your goals, but because. Uh, from what I read about the rationality movement online, it seemed like a lot of it was grounded in behavioral economics and just better understanding how people make decisions. CIFAR was
7: founded in 2012, and since then it has garnered interest from the tech and science community. Melissa told me that at the workshop she attended, the majority of participants were young, highly educated, and mostly working in tech. That's probably because the workshop has a very computery approach to self-improvement.
4: It really... It seemed to imply that like we should at least in some regards be thinking of ourselves as computers, although that wasn't meant to downplay the intuitive component of our decision making at all. Um, So I guess I remember there was one time where, well, even I mean, even just now I use the word iterate. So that's definitely um, programming terminology. People would say like, if, then, else which is another programming term. Um, Yeah, when on the first day, when during the first session, one of the things that we had to do was create a bugs list. So it was just a list of issues in our lives or things that we wanted to do better on. So even the terminology bugs was definitely taken from programming.
7: CFARS founders, Julia Galiff, Anna Salomon and Michael Smith, all have extensive backgrounds in math, science, or both. They argue that the same behavioral, economic, and cognitive science research that artificial intelligence and machine learning researchers use to improve AI and robots could be used to improve our own lives as humans. In other words, we should train ourselves to optimize the way we think, similarly to how a computer does.
2: So uh, one type of, uh, of artificial intelligence algorithm is a, a Bayesian algorithm, which basically, uh, is so-called because it's based on Bayes' theorem, which is a simple, uh, pretty basic theorem from probability theory that describes how an ideal reasoner should update uh, its beliefs about the world as it learns new information. That's Julia Galeth, one of the founders of CIFAR. So uh, an example of a Bayesian algorithm that you've probably encountered is a spam filter, um, which uh, can adapt over time to get better and better at identifying spam. Um, And also can adapt as spammers change their tactics and become more sophisticated uh, based on new information. So the spam filter is getting all this new information based on which emails people classify as spam or not spam. And so uh, if a lot of emails that are being tagged as spam uh, happen to contain the word Viagra, for example, uh, you know, and that frequency is much higher than it is in the set of emails not being classified as spam, then... Uh, this Bayesian algorithm will start to increase the probability that it puts on a new email that contains the word Viagra being spam. Uh, so, you know, it's useful or it's it's interesting, I think, to compare that process, that algorithm, to how the human brain actually works. Um, and the answer to the question, like, is the human brain Bayesian, is uh, kind of, but very imperfectly. Like, there's some some very significant ways that we diverge from, um, this model of a perfect Bayesian reasoner. Um, and one of those ways is that we, you know, if we were a Bayesian algorithm, as we went around the world encountering little bits of evidence, um, against our beliefs about the world, we would notice those pieces of evidence and very slightly, you know, downgrade our confidence that that belief is true. So, you know, if I, uh, uh, let's say I, I'm like, quite confident that the paleo diet is the most healthy diet there is. Um, and I, you know, meet some smart person who like says, well, yeah, I like looked into it and I don't really think it was, it's all that well substantiated. Or maybe i meet a few people who say, yeah, I tried it and it like really didn't work for me. Um, a, a Bayesian agent would, you know, at least a little bit downgrade their confidence in the paleo diet. Not, not completely abandon it, but like note that those th- those things are evidence, at least it's a little bit of evidence against the paleo diet. Um, But in practice, what we what the human brain tends to do uh, is is dismiss evidence that contradicts our our pet theory by finding some explanation uh, that allows us to keep to retain our strength, the strength of our belief in our our theory um, and by explaining away the evidence. So, you know, well, you know, that person who disagreed with it, like, you know, I, I remember he like got this other thing wrong. So he's probably not that great of a reasoner, or. Um, well, that person, uh, like, doesn't exercise very much, so, so probably they, like, weren't doing the paleo diet right or, you know, uh, it's whatever. You can, you can always find some way to dismiss or just ignore. Like, sometimes you don't even come up with an explanation, like a rationale for ignoring the evidence. You just ignore it and, or forget about it. Julie
7: explained that the premise of CIFAR is simple. Our minds didn't evolve in an environment anything like the one in which we currently live. And as a result, they're riddled with bad habits. Despite our best efforts, over and over again, we become frustrated when we're unable to do the things we say we want to, like go to the gym regularly or finally clean out our closets.
2: One thing I'll say is that a lot of the biases in the human brain, a lot of the gaps between, um, you know, actual human reasoning and decision-making and the sort of ideal model of human reasoning and of reasoning and decision-making um a lot of those biases stem from the fact that the human brain did not evolve in a context that's very much at all like the modern context that we're we have to operate in now um the the like ancestral environment on the savannah uh that our, our our ancestors were making decisions on did not involve uh complicated long-term decisions. Um, It involved like pretty immediate decisions on the moment to moment or day-to-day basis. So they weren't like trying to decide, you know, how much money to invest, uh, you know, given payoffs 50 years hence or et cetera. Um, And it also didn't involve abstractions the way a lot of modern decisions do. In the CIFAR
7: theory, our cognitive biases and lapses in judgment don't just cause anguish in our personal lives. But they're also responsible for some of the world's most disastrous problems. Cifar argues that researchers, politicians, scientists, and others responsible for important decisions simply aren't mentally equipped to think rationally about the complex problems our modern world faces.
2: I guess what I'm saying is, uh, I think increasingly, uh, as technology becomes more powerful and as the uh, the world becomes more interconnected, um, the the decisions that matter the most about the future of our our civilization. Involve the kinds of things that the human brain um, didn't evolve to handle well. So uh, I think that the need for um, for some kind of of uh, training or or you know practice or techniques to to be able to understand what those limitations are that you know, are built into our brains and try to compensate for them becomes increasingly important.
7: I'm still skeptical about whether or not CIFAR's techniques could change the world for the better, but I was relieved to hear that Julia wasn't completely convinced either. How convinced are you that it's working?
2: Uh, I would say only mildly to moderately convinced, um, but that, that probability, you know, changes over time as I learn more information.
7: Melissa, at least, has benefited from the workshop in the long run.
4: The workshop has definitely had a positive impact on my life. I feel, I mean, I'm a senior in college, so I'm making decisions that really will have a significant impact on my future. And I feel much better equipped to take those, to make those types of decisions. So for example, at the workshop and using techniques from the workshop, I figured out what type of job I wanna do next year. Um, I figured out I feel much more comfortable with the types of things that I want to study in graduate school, which I was very confused about before. And on a smaller level, you know, I've been swimming more consistently than I ever have at any point in my life. I've been flossing more consistently. So I've found it beneficial for both the longer term goals and the bigger goals, but also the smaller ones that affect me more on the day to day. That's our show. Thanks so much for listening.
5: You can read in our image at motherboard.tv. You can email us feedback or hate mail or whatever at radio at motherboard.tv. You can tweet at me at Jason underscore Kebler, K-O-E-B-L-E-R. And if you like us, please consider rating us on iTunes and tell your friends about us.
4: And if you really liked it, send an email to Gimlet Media and tell them you should be featured on their sampler podcast. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week.